0: Well, I'd like for you to uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus this morning. Uh, we are going to begin in Leviticus chapter four and be uh, going through chapter four, chapter five, a little bit of chapter six, and just for good measure, some of chapter seven. Um, and so, I won't read it all. Um, I'm just going to read um, a couple, an excerpt from chapter four and chapter six. In fact, I'm going to. It's probably even going to be a little different on the screen, but I'll try to help you uh, as you follow along if you're. Uh, Maybe you haven't been here for a while, we are in the book of Leviticus, maybe you're visiting here this morning, and uh, some of the things in which I'm going to read may sound uh, strange to you, and uh, I want you to understand it sounds strange to us as well. Um, And this is perhaps uh, certainly unusual for us to do this, to spend our time in a book like Leviticus, often neglected, and yet even now in our third week of this series, I think uh, many of us would testify how richly God has blessed us. For we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by our God. And so we're happy to be here, aren't we, this morning. So Leviticus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands about the things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer the sin that he has for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hands on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. If you also know in Leviticus chapter 6, and I will begin in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of a deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to, him, give, give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful for Your truth. And as we've already shared this morning, this is a truth that is foreign to our circumstances. Truth about a covenant under which we no longer stand. And yet, Your truth regardless. And in it abides eternal principles for us to learn that we may more faithfully follow our God and more accurately image forth our Savior. Help us, therefore, to understand it for Your glory and our grain. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the 18th century when a man named William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, was born and lived. A man who had a very tragic life who suffered from severe mental illness his entire life. Um, His tragedy really began when he was six years old, when his mother died, and his father, not knowing how to raise a six-year-old boy, promptly, after the death of his mother, sent him off to boarding school. At the age of six, he would there be bullied relentlessly by his peers, and from his biographer, even his teachers would join in the bullying. In 1759, when he was 28 years old, William Cooper had a complete mental breakdown and attempted suicide three times. He was racked with guilt, plagued with the idea that forgiveness was not available to him, that his damnation was inevitable. It's been said that Cooper, in his despair, would literally sit by a window and stare out the window for hours and hours at a time. At age 32, he is finally committed to St. Album's insane asylum in London in 1763. And as you can imagine, being in an insane asylum in 1763 is not a happy place to be. And yet, by God's kind providence, there he met a man named Nathaniel Cotton, a strong follower of the Lord Jesus who had his heart go out for Cooper and he wanted to minister to him. And uh, Cotton would leave his Bible open in places that he knew Cooper would come by and find. And in fact, one day he left it open on a park bench in a a garden that he knew Cooper uh, liked to frequent. And Cooper saw the Bible and for the first time he actually read it. It was left open to John chapter 11, which you perhaps may know is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Cooper would later write of that event saying, so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct. He would find himself his way to Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, which declares that God has has made a way by pouring His wrath upon His Son that we might be justified. He saw that this wrath of God in which He lived in fear had been poured out upon another and He would write of that encounter with Romans 3.25 saying, Immediately I received the strength to believe it and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made, my pardon sealed in His blood and the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. Unless the Almighty had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport, and I could only look to heaven in wonder and fear, overwhelmed with gratitude. In 1765... About two years later, Cooper would leave St. Album's and St. Asylum and begin to minister for the next 35 years on behalf of King Jesus. He, though, continued to struggle with depression throughout his whole life, chronically struggled with it, terrible bouts of it. He was incredibly fruitful for our Lord, becoming a very prolific poet, writing many of the hymns that you enjoy singing, one of which you are very familiar with. For it was Cooper who wrote some 250 years ago, There is a Fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. He found liberation from his guilt of his sin by being washed in the blood of another, just as God had planned it, planned it from old, as we see in the book of Leviticus. Today, we consider the fourth and fifth sacrifice that God gave to his people on the foot's the foot of Sinai, the purification offering, or often called the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And I've been trying to, in, in introducing uh, these sermons to you, convince you of the importance of the book of Leviticus. Let me try one last time, if I might. You know that, um, of course, the, the first five books of the Bible is a unit. It's often called the Pentateuch, which means a five-fold book, sometimes referred to as the Torah or the Law. Right, And there's these five books that contain the Pentateuch. Now, you may not know this, but in ancient literature, they would always put the climax of a a story not at the end like we do in Western literature, but right in the middle. And so if you ever want to find the climax of what's going on, you look dead smack in the middle. We'll see that in the book of Leviticus once we get to the middle of this book. But if you think about this five-fold book, where's Leviticus? Right, It is right in the middle. Book number three. In fact, uh, one Old Testament theologian says, in ancient literature, the literary center is often thematically central. Thus, reading an ancient work may be likened, likened justly to traversing a mountain. With the two halves, the ascent and the descent, mirroring each other and the central summit constituting the literary height. Right? The literary height is Leviticus. Leviticus. In fact, if you put, even you take Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, put them together, the first half of Exodus is the people of God journeying out of the land of bondage. The second half of Exodus is them building the tabernacle. You get to Leviticus, it's all about worship and the tabernacle. The first half of Numbers is taking down the tabernacle. And the second half of Numbers is their journey into the land of promise. You see how God is laying that out. And there in the center, he wants to show them how it is That they might worship him. How it is that they might live with this God who has chosen to dwell in their midst? The answer, as we have discussed now for three weeks, is through sacrifice, through through a bloody knife, and through a burning altar. In fact, I think I even have a picture of the burning altar, and it's also on the back of your notes. Can you guys bring that up? This is the bronze altar, or sometimes called the burning altar. Um, This would be at the entrance of the tabernacle courtyard. They would walk into the the courtyard. The first thing that they would walk into would be the bronze altar. Behind that altar would be the would be the tabernacle where God dwells. And the point is clear. If you want to come near God where God dwells, you first have to walk by the place of sacrifice. You have to walk by the burning altar or the bronze altar. It was wood overlaid with bronze. It was about eight feet square, about the size of a small room, about four and a half feet tall. And you see um, the, the, the grate there. They would put the offering on top of that. The fire be roaring underneath it. You also notice the four horns that you'll see repeated in the book of Leviticus. In the book of uh, Exodus as well. And those horns would symbolize strength there. And often they would uh, apply blood to, the, to those horns as an offering to the Lord. In fact, when you would come to that altar, you would have conflicting emotions, I think, as a worshiper in this day. Because you would realize it's because you're sin that you're coming there. And so the altar would be in many ways a place of sorrow, wouldn't it? And a place of contrition. But at the same time, you would remember at the altar that God accepts sacrifice For your sin. And so in some ways it would be a place of joy and sorrow. Right? And and I think we live in something a very similar situation, do we not? Do we when we come to our altar, if you will, when we come to the cross? The altar upon which the sacrifice of our Lord has died. Do we not also experience those conflicting emotions? Understanding that it is because of our sin that Jesus is there, and therefore feeling the sorrow over it, and yet uh, 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 over that sorrow, this is indomitable joy that He has accepted Christ as our substitute. In fact, i mentioned to you that that thing is is going to there's going to be a fire inside of it, and I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter six, and I want to show you um, uh, that this uh, about a little bit about this fire. Um and uh we're gonna look at Leviticus six, verse uh, let's see, verse nine through thirteen. It, it says, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. That was the first offering we considered. The burnt offering shall be on the on the hearth, on the altar all night until morning, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall not put on his linen garments and and put on his undergarments on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Verse 12. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering, Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Now, there's a lot in this passage. I can't get to most of it, but I don't know if you see the theme in those verses right there. And the theme is that this fire is to burn perpetually. The fire is not to go out. There's two reasons why this fire will burn day and night, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. The first is it would show them their perpetual need for atonement. Right? If they're going to live with God, then the atoning fire can never be extinguished. It has to burn day and night. They're going to need to keep seeking atonement again and again, reminding them that this is not a permanent solution. Right, that, that the fire kept going because they had to keep coming back and making atonement. I do want to tell you on this side of the cross, let me say with great joy in my heart this morning, the fire has been put out. Right, We no longer need... You listen, atonement has been made forever, completely, and thoroughly. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Hallelujah indeed. This glorious truth in which God has perfected us through Christ as He sanctifies us. But the fire on the altar was not simply to remind them to seek atonement. It was all right. We saw last week that they would bring their grain offering to that altar and they would bring their fellowship or their peace offering to that altar as a way to thank God and as a way to seek God's presence and fellowship with God. And so that perpetual fire. Showed God's continual presence. In fact, you see that God often will appear in the form of fire. He would appear to Moses, as you know, in the form of a burning bush. He would lead Israel through the wilderness in the form of a burning cloud. He would come down on Sinai. We're told that um, uh, smoke enveloped the mountain because the Lord came down on it in fire. We read in the book of Daniel, for instance, he sees a throne of fire with wheels of fire and fire came out of the presence of the Lord. We read in the book of Revelation that Jesus' eyes are like flames of fire. And we get to Leviticus chapter 9 next week, God willing, we'll see that it's actually God who lights this fire, that he sends fire to it. And to have that fire burning is a continual reminder that God is always with them. It's almost like the Olympic flame, you know, the, the Olympic torch will burn day and night as long as the games continue. And maybe next time you watch the Olympics and you see that torch lit, it might remind you of the burning altar long ago would never be extinguished. So that they would know that God is with them. That He would never leave them. How appropriate is it, therefore, once this side of the cross, when God first wanted to testify that He has come to His people in a powerful way, in an abiding way, through the Holy Spirit, that He chose the image of tongues of fire. Resting above their head. Just as I think he pointed to from this burning altar. Well, I mentioned this altar. We received five types of sacrifice. We saw the burnt offering for atonement. The grain offering to thank God. The peace offering to seek fellowship with God. Today we consider two, the final two offerings. The purification offering. Uh, often called the sin offering. And the guilt offering. We'll see those in chapters 4 chapters 5. We'll just glance at chapters 6 and 7. because I told you last week. The chapters six and seven repeat those five alt, uh, those offerings, but from the priest's perspective. So let's think about the purification offering. We'll spend most of our time on this offering. I think it's it's a very important offering for us to understand. The, I call it the purification offering. I know the, the ESV calls it a sin offering. Maybe your your translation does as well. Um, it's a it's an obscure word that is often translated purification. The problem, I think, with calling it the sin offering is that the burnt offering has already been given to the people of Israel as the primary offering for dealing with sin. The other reason I I prefer the purification offering is this, this offering is done in response to sin, yes, but it's also done in response to ritual impurity, which has nothing to do with sin. So if a woman has a child, she would bring a purification offering. If you would touch a dead body, which is not sinful, you would pre- bring a purification offering. You need to remove that defilement. When Jesus tells the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the priest didn't want to go near the man because he might be dead. If he, went, he t- came in contact with that man, he would become ritually unclean. He would need to bring a bowl for a sacrifice. It would be very expensive and very time-consuming. Right? It wouldn't be because of a sin that he committed, but because he was impure. So you give the offering when there is defilement. Sin brings defilement, true enough, but there's also other ways to be filed that we'll consider as we work our way through Leviticus, bringing ritual impurity, right? And, and the idea is that God cannot live in uncleanness. God cannot live in filth. God's house, His courtyard, His tabernacle was to remain pure. And so the purification offering the, the would purify the worshiper, but it would also purify the place of worship god's house so that god could be among us as people strange enough strange as enough as it is in order to clean up the place the detergent which you would use is blood and you would take blood to clean up uh the the tabernacle and even yourself in order that you might dwell in god's place you say well why is this how is this relevant well i think it's relevant because listen god has come and now resides within us does he not and the bible warns us for instance in ephesians 4 30 that we can grieve the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And I think what Scripture is teaching us is that in our own sin, we can minimize the experience and the enjoyment and the blessings that, we, that God has for us by dwelling within us. We could snuff Him out, if you will. And I think this purification offering was, was done to address those issues. And so I want to just work through the ritual. It's maybe take me about ten minutes. If you'll just bear with me, we're just going to understand what it is. And then then we're going to try to bring out some points of application. So what what was the ritual? Well, we see it in chapter 4. And it's interesting about what's unique about the purification offering is that it totally depended upon the type of person that sinned. And so you see a number of paragraphs in chapter 4, don't you? The first paragraph is simply the purification offering for the high priest. The next paragraph is for the purification offering for the whole nation. And then it goes to the leader... And then it goes to a common citizen, and then it goes to a poor citizen in chapter 5. And you see it's moving from the most prominent to the least prominent. What we're going to do, we're just going to focus on the high priest's purification offering, and we'll, I'll just comment briefly on the other types of offerings, or at least the, the other individuals who might bring this offering. This offering would begin like all the other offerings. You bring the offering to the entrance of the tent of meeting, you would meet a priest there, you would lay your hands upon the offering. You would pray over it. You would, you would understand that this offering is now taking my place. And then the worshiper would kill it. Note verse 3 through 4 of chapter 4. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hands on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. It's all that same thing with the burnt offering and the peace offering. But now, now it's different. Right? With the burnt offering, the whole animal's burned. Remember that? With the peace offering, you divide it up. God gets his part. The priest gets his part. And the fa- worshiping people get their part. And you have a feast. You all eat it there. Okay? With the purification offering, the focus is not on the animal, but the focus is on the animal's blood. And this, this is well, where, where this idea drives home. It's not what to do with the animal. They're going to take that outside the camp. They're going to burn it. It's not a big deal. But the focus, what do we do with the blood? In, in fact, uh, the blood is so holy, you'll read in chapter 6 about the, uh, um, the, the priest's responsibility for this offering. If he gets blood on his garments from the purification offering, that garment cannot leave the uh, temple courtyard until it's washed. Okay? Or if he eats, if he cooks the, the purification offering, which he has a right to eat... If he cooks it in a bronze pot, God says you better wash that pot because all the residue in that pot is holy. If he prepares it in a clay pot, he says you have to destroy that pot because that clay might have absorbed some blood and that's holy. You never use it again, right? It's all about the blood. And so once the bull is killed, the the high priest would offer a bull which would be the most expensive sacrifice. Notice what he does with the blood according to verse 5. It says, and the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. Okay? And so he would go into the, into the tabernacle. You know there's two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. He would go into the holy place there and he would bring his blood there. Now the only time in the Mosaic Covenant when someone would bring blood into the tent would be if the high priest has sinned or the nation has sinned. It would only be this purification offering. Before I started studying this, I thought blood was going in there all the time. It's actually very rare. The only time blood would be brought into the tent would be a purification offering offered for the priest or the nation at whole. And of course, you know, the Day of Atonement is simply just a series of purification or sin offerings. And so he would bring it into the, the Lord's home. The reason why he would do this is he works there. And his sin has now defiled God's house. Right, And so his defilement is greater than if it was a common citizen. And notice what he does once he's inside there, according to verse 6. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of the meeting and all the rest of the blood of the bull. He shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offerings that is at the entrance of the ten of meaning so he does does a couple of things right he dips his finger in the blood and he sprinkles it on the veil which is the door to the throne room and he do that seven times symbolizing completeness perfection thoroughness you're going to see the number seven in the book of leviticus over and over again right he's showing that now the tabernacle has been cleansed it's been he's removing the defilement it's now restored to its holy status He would smear some blood on the altar of incense, which would stand right in front of the veil, creating a perpetual cloud before they would walk into God's presence. And afterwards, he would take the blood outside the tabernacle to the bronze altar, which we just considered, and pour the blood there at the base. The rest of the animal, um, in verses 8 through 11, uh, they would butcher it. They would burn God's part. Remember God's part? The fat, kidneys, and liver. They would take the rest of the animal outside and into a clean place, to have something called an ash heap, and there they would burn the entire animal. And so that's the purification offering for a high priest. If the nation sinned, verses 13 through 21, they would perform the almost the exact same rite. You notice the, the result. Look in verse 20. What was the result? It says, thus shall he do with a bowl as he did with a bowl of the sin offering, so shall he do this, and the priest shall make atonement for them. And they shall be forgiven. and this is what he do for the nation. Now I think it's interesting to think, well, I was talking to my children last night about this offering, I think it's interesting to think about communal sin. Isn't that interesting? We don't think in those terms. We think of, you know, we're Americans, one man, one vote, you know, individual independence, right? In God's mind, that the people would, could sin together. Um, we talked about what are some sins that our nation is committing together as a nation even now and we see this by the way you keep read the next book 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 of numbers you want to see communal sin it's throughout that book they complain about this they complain about this they complain about that and god understands a communal responsibility sees his people living in community together and he says therefore if you sin unintentionally the community does you need to bring this sacrifice and we then move on to a leader and then a citizen there are three differences the leader or the citizens would not offer a bull. The leader would offer a male goat. Um, and the citizen would offer a female lamb. The blood was not brought into the tent, but it was simply smeared on the four horns of the bronze altar, which we saw. And the animal, in this case, was not burned outside the camp. It was given to the priest for food. You can read that in chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Now, the priest could not eat the offering if he was offering it for his own sin. Right? So if he won the sin, he gave that offering, the whole animal had to be burned because he can't benefit from his own sin. It'd be like robbing a bank and then turning yourself in to get the reward. Right? So he can't do that. If the nation sins, he can't, he's part of the nation, he can't eat that. But if anybody else sinned, the priests would go ahead and they would, they would eat a, of that sacrifice. And so, uh, it, the, the poor would bring a, a lamb, a leader would bring a goat. Well, you, well, you might think, well, what, what if, what if you can't afford a lamb, right? Well, look in chapter five, verse seven. But if he cannot form a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons. That remind you of anyone? Um, there's a, a purification offering given in Luke chapter two by a, a young maiden named Mary and her husband Joseph, seeking purification after childbirth. A boy, they named Jesus, and they would bring two doves because they could not afford a lamb. Well, you say, well, what if you can't afford a lamb? Well, look in verse eleven of chapter five. But if you cannot, excuse me, can't afford uh, birds. But if you cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as an offering for sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephath of fine flour for sin offering. Um, he just bring flour if you can't afford a lamb. And what we see is we've been seen in the book of Leviticus. That God makes provision for all people. That God is not partial to the rich. He's not partial to the wealthy. He's not partial to celebrity and power. God is not so needy that He needs to be associated with those people who are of prominence. God owns everything. And therefore, He loves to associate with the lowly and the forgotten. And I'll tell you, that was true then. It was true in Jesus' day. It's true today. That's so why I'm excited for you men to go to Ghana and associate with the world's lowly. I'm excited for the dozen of you to go, uh, to go or I guess uh, two three dozen are going next week. I think it is. I should know. I'm going uh, to e- Eagle Butte, right? We're going to be ministering amongst the lowly there because God has a heart for the lowly and the poor, right? He doesn't need our wealth, but you do see that God uses people, uses faithful stewards to provide for his people. Right? You notice that the priest ate this offering. In fact, the priest ate the grain offering. He eats the peace offering. He eats the purification offering. We'll see in a moment. He eats the guilt offering. So evidently all the priests eat are carbs and red meat. Okay? So I, that sounds like a good job for me. Um, otherwise, priests would be fat. Okay? And, and some commentators said a fat priest was a sign of a spiritual Israel. Right? Because what does that mean? They're bringing offerings. They're coming. What happens if they don't bring offerings? Read the book of Nehemiah. They shut the whole place down. No worship anymore. Why? Because the priests have left to work their fields. Priests aren't supposed to have fields. Right, They're supposed to live off the offerings of the worshiper of God uh, so that they can continue this ministry. And there are times when the, the nation's spiritual integrity is low and the priests have nothing to eat. There are times when it's high and they have uh, plenty to eat. And I hope you understand that there is a parallel from then to today. And continues to be that God has chosen people to enter into full-time ministry and they are to be supported by the gifts of the worshipers. And I know that is, sounds incredibly self-serving, doesn't it, for me to say that this morning. And yet, it's um, well, self-serving or not, it's true. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so I just want to take a moment, if I may, to thank this church for its generosity, that you take care of me and my family of nine by your gracious gifts. And you care for Josh and Pastor Josh and his family of six. You care for three other staff members at this church, and beyond that, we give over 20% of your gifts to the mission work. You support FCA missionaries here in Loudoun County and Mosaic um, a Women's Center. The church, two church planners in Northern Virginia, missionaries in Los Angeles. They need it. Missionaries in Tijuana, Kurdistan, a Christian, uh, uh, Chris, uh, Christian teachers in Eagle Butte pastor in Ghana, Bible translator in Papua New Guinea, and I know I, I'm sure I'm missing some. You also note, and I just want to remind you, as I like to do, if, you, if this church exceeds, gives more than the church needs, which we have done for now four and a half years, and are on track to do it once again in 2017, we don't save any of that money. If you're new here, amen indeed. We, we, all the money that we, we don't need doesn't go in the bank where we draw a quarter percent interest. It goes to the nation's. Many people are going to Eagle Butte or Ghana. They're going because this church is able to help fund them because we have of the excess giving. And so we want to be generous in what God has given us as I think He teaches us even in the purification offering. In fact, let me draw three points of application from this offering. First of all, I want you to note the danger of unintentional sin. The purification offering is done for unintentional sin Note chapter four, verse two, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally, right? And it goes, it says that over and over and over again, right? And, and chapter five will give you some examples as to what that unintentional sin looks like. If you sin unintentionally, you make a purification offering. You say, what if I sin intentionally, right? The book of Numbers will actually identify high handed sin, sin done in flagrant disregard to God says, I don't care what you say, I'm doing it anyways. Under this covenant, there is no sacrifice for that kind of sin. This is simply for sin that is done unintentionally. And that may surprise you, this whole idea of unintentional sin. Because you might assume, wait a second, there's no such thing as unintentional sin, right? Isn't sin all about the intent of the individual? And certainly intent is important, isn't it? But what God is teaching us is that sin is not fundamentally subjective it's not uh, uh, despite what our culture would say sin is not about kind of violating your own code it seems like the only sin in america that we could commit these days is not being true to ourselves right it's all about me no god says sin is fundamentally objective it's violation of a code that exists outside of you and your ignorance of it is not an excuse and I, I, by the way, I think that makes sense. I don't know if this ever happened to you. You maybe driving 45 in a 25 and the blue lights are behind you and you pull over and a nice policeman comes and says, do you know how fast you're going? And you say, well, yeah, officer, I was going 45. And he says, well, do you know you're driving in a 25 mile an hour zone? And what do you say? You say what I say. I had no idea. Right. And then what does he say? Oh, you didn't know. Okay. Well, don't worry about it then. I have a good day. No, he, at the very least you're getting a warning, but often you're getting a ticket. It doesn't matter if you don't know. Ignorance is not an excuse. And maybe you're not ignorant, maybe you're just negligent, right? You know you should stop at a red light, but you miss it, and you go right through it, okay? You didn't intend to go through it, but you went through it anyways, It doesn't matter if you intend it or not, you could still cause some harm, can you not? Whether you're aware of the law or aware that you're breaking it, that does not absolve you. And and the same is true for us in in our moral um, dealings, our moral acts. That we, we may be proud and not know it. We may be greedy and not know it. We may have careless words and not know it. We may be doing these things and not knowing it. And just because you don't know it doesn't mean it doesn't cause harm. It is still sin. Even if you don't intend to sin, it still brings troubling circumstances. And if I can, just by way of confession, uh, my wife, in her kindness to me, a uh, week or so ago, said, Honey, um, I don't know what's going on in your life, but the past couple of weeks, you've been short with the kids, verbally. You've been kind of curt with me. You haven't been yourself. And we're kind of feeling we need to stay away from you. And, and to be honest, I was totally unaware I was just totally surprised. I had no idea. I I did not intend to have strong words. And yet, even though I didn't intend to, I still caused harm in my family. I still drove my children away from me. There is such thing as unintended sin. It's why we need people in our lives who can see sin that we do not see and point it out. To Be able to see the pride in us and say, Hey, I love you, but I, I think you're off here. See the hypocrisy in us. I wonder, do you have someone in your life like that? who knows you, someone who has permission to help you and point out sin. In fact, I was working on this sermon. I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go sit down with Pastor Josh. And I, I went in Pastor Josh's office and I said, Brother, I just want you to know that if you see me sin, I'm giving you permission, if I have not already, to point that out to me. And he said, I really appreciate that. And then he got out his clipboard and he had all these things written down on it. Right? <laughs> An hour later, I walked out very humble. Uh, right? You need someone. Listen, here's your homework. Find someone in your life and just be clear. I'm being crystal clear with you. If I'm sinning and I don't want to sin and not know about it, you need to tell me because you love me. Number two, note the dangers of a leader's sin. God is singling out leaders for their sin. Isn't he? He starts with a high priest. His sacrifices. It's more expensive. his sacrifice, The blood of the sat sacrifice goes into the tent. Right? And then it goes to the nation and the leader then the citizen. And what we're learning is that sin is not stagnant. And you say, well, I'm, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just hanging out in my own home doing my own thing. And God says, it's nonsense. Because don't you think sin impacts you? Don't you think it changes who you are? And don't you think you, you eventually leave that place and you begin to impact other people? Right? your sin, whether you intend it or not, will impact the people around you. And so I I in particular want to speak to the leaders in this church. Elders, if you are greedy. Deacons, if you are proud. Sunday school teachers, if you are lukewarm, you will spread that within our faith community. And conversely, if you are devoted and humble and generous, you will begin to spread that in our. Faith community. I don't know if you read the Old Testament, you understand there is a one-to-one correlation that if the the leaders of the nation of Israel are devoted to God, the nation is devoted to God. If the leaders are idolaters, the nation will follow them. Right? We see that in Israel. We see that in the church. You see that in your family. Dads, if you are not going after Jesus, if you have an anger problem, that is going to spread into your family's life. God gives you authority, and please understand: everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. In particular, those who want to stand up. And teach God's Word like I'm endeavoring to do right now. Please know, you already know this, teachers, don't you? James 3.1 Not every one of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers. For you know those who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. Right? That's what God is teaching all the way back in Leviticus. So church, pray for your elders. And pray for your deacons. And pray for your ministry directors. And pray for your Sunday school teachers. Pray for us. And elders and deacons and leaders in this church, do not make peace with your sin. It impacts far more people than you realize. The third point of application, I want you to note the solution to all of our sin. We saw in chapter 4 and verse 20 that they would make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. If you look in verse 26, at the end of that verse, we read the priest shall make atonement for his sin and he shall be forgiven. you look in verse 31, we read "And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven verse 35 for good measure and the priest shall make atonement for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven god has made a way for them to find forgiveness that they might be purified from their sin god is pleased to give forgiveness god delights to give mercy but he does not give it automatically he commanded that blood be spilled in fact later in leviticus we'll read in chapter 17 the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. Right? The, the sacrifice would shed its blood. The sacrifice would give up its life instead of the sinner. So God would, in a sense, punish the sub, sa, substitutionary sacrifice rather than the one who is giving it. But you know this is a provisional way to receive forgiveness. Right, This is just uh, not permanent. They're waiting for a final purification to be made. I mean, if I'd lived in this time... I, I would like be there every other day. I would run out of bowls. Right? You're here again, right? Yeah, I, I, right. Because don't you think you would feel that weight, right? You were constantly coming and thinking, God, won't you do something permanent? Won't you fix this? And my 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 youngest daughter just turned four um, this January, and and we, we bought her a little tea set. Like we like to buy our girls, and we we all sat around on her birthday, and and she made us tea, right? And, and we all sipped tea with our pinkies up and you know, commented and how, how delicious was the tea as she dipped her little wooden tea bags in there. There, there was no tea. Right? But we were crediting her with delicious and wonderful tea. Right? It, there's no tea because if she, she made tea, she would hurt herself. Right? You see what God is, is doing at this time. They're, they're, this is provisional. God is crediting them with atonement. Because of a final atonement that is going to be made. Final atonement that will complete it. What is that final atonement? You know, it is, it is our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the blood of Christ. You know, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that the saints in heaven have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Or consider Hebrews chapter 9. Christ entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but His own blood. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with blood and blood of goats and bulls sacrifices for the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who offered Himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. You see, what, what Scripture is teaching us is just as the tabernacle was cleansed through the blood of the Mosaic Covenant, so the temple now in the New Covenant, is cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. What's the temple? We are. That's right. Right? We now are the dwelling place of God. How can God come and dwell in one as filthy and sinful as I? Well, it is only because I have been purified by the blood of Christ. In fact, Scripture says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our... Excuse me, let me try another verse. Um, Verse John 1, 9 says uh, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, isn't He? To forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the language of Leviticus. That's the language of purification. In fact, two verses earlier, 1-7 says the blood of Jesus purifies us from all our sin. Our Lord is our purification offering. Allegra and I met in, in high school. Uh, she, uh, being a a gorgeous cheerleader, and uh, I uh, was a dork, uh, and I know that's hard to believe, but um, it's true, and I was nervous around Allegro, in fact, our first date, she didn't even know was a date, right, because I was, I was a dork, but I was a sneaky dork, right, and so I, I remember our first date, and I'm with her, and it's like, oh my, like, I'm, a, I'm with a girl, you know, now what do I do, right? And uh, I think probably should talk to her or you know uh, make conversation. It wasn't pretty, okay? Um, And and now Allegra calls me. We'll have celebrate twenty years of marriage next month, and she'll call me. And you know what I'll say? Hey, what's up? Right? Right? There's there's no nervousness at all. It's it's all gone. Now goes without saying that God is far greater than Allegra or your spouse. You know, I'll tell you, I study Leviticus, and he just keeps getting bigger and bigger in my heart. He keeps getting higher and higher. Not that I feel farther from him, but I think, what, what an honor it is that I could talk to him. I mean, what an honor it is right now that, that we could do what we're doing right now, to listen to him. And you ever think about that? It's like that, that I'm coming before the God of the universe, and he wants to listen to me. You know, in this day, the high priest, you know, this could go into the temple, right, in the, into the throne room one day a year, right? Just, just one man, one day a year, that's it, and, and, and through, through Christ, we can come boldly whenever we want. I mean can you what if you were the high priest and today was the day in which you were to go into the temple, right and like an hour from now, you're going to go behind that veil, and you, of all the people in the world, will, will encounter God as the scripture says face to face. What would you be thinking? I think I'd be confessing every sin I know. I can't believe I'm going to go stand before God in a moment my heart would be pounding that there there would be an awe upon my soul you ever have that awe upon your soul that you my brothers and sisters can come through christ before this same god worship him sing to him pray to him every morning god says i'll meet with you if you want it is to me extraordinary we can because we have been purified by jesus Well, let me quickly work through the guilt offering. I'll just take about, maybe about seven or eight minutes, if that's okay. The purification offering teaches us to be reconciled to God. The guilt offering teaches us to be reconciled with one another. They would bring a ram for the guilt offering. It would be the only option they have. And uh, you you would throw the blood of the ram on the altar. Uh, The fat and the entrails would be burned. The priest would receive the rest. What's interesting about the guilt offering is you would also bring repayment for the wrong in which you have done. Okay, sometimes this is called the restitution offering or the reparation offering. And what God is teaching us is when we have wronged someone, we wronged our neighbors, that requires restitution. This should not surprise us, by the way, because Leviticus is the book which teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves. In other words, to love God, you must love your neighbor. And so the guilt offering was to repair a broken relationship. There, there are three examples, occasions, for the guilt offering. Chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, is if you have wronged God by profaning one of His holy things. And the Bible tells us you bring a ram for the atonement, you, re, you, you, you replace that thing in which you have taken, plus there's a fine, one-fifth, of the value of the thing in which you have profaned. And what it's teaching us is that, our, that, that in order to respect the holy king who lives among us, we must respect his property. Right? And once again, I say, well, you know, God doesn't own a temple anymore. At least a building, what does he now own? He owns you. You and I have been bought by the blood of Christ. You are his property. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are to be sexually pure because you're God's holy temple. How could you take the temple and profane it? We've been bought by the blood of Christ. The second occasion for the guilt offering is if you experience guilt, interesting enough, for an unknown sin. You see this in verses 17 through 19. In fact, look at verse 17 of chapter 5. excuse It says, If anyone sins doing any of these things that the Lord... Any things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done, though he does not know it, then he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He doesn't know what he's done. But he just feels guilty. And so God says, okay, I'll, you bring a guilt offering. He doesn't have to re- restore anything because he doesn't know what he's done. But he says if you feel guilty, you could bring a guilt offering. I, I think this is interesting because we like in our culture we deny the existence of sin. We, we say sin no longer exists. But we cannot deny the existence of guilt. And if there is no sin, then why in the world do we feel guilty? There was a a documentary in 2008 called The New Ten Commandments in which 65,000 people were interviewed and they said which of the Ten Commandments are still relevant. As as if that's our role, our authority to decide, okay God, those are not going to work, these will work for me. Two of the ten made um, the, the relevance list, the new Ten Commandments, the, um, you could probably guess them not to murder or not to steal. So adultery, lying, coveting, dishonoring parents, that's okay, right? Um, of course, it has nothing to do with God, so we get rid of the first four, right? And, and what it is is we've discarded this idea of right and wrong, but Scripture teaches us, or you, you, uh, experience teaches us, and Scripture, you can't eliminate guilt. I mean, just guilt, even if you say there is nothing right or wrong, we've experienced guilt. And I don't know if you ever experienced this. You allow yourself to be quiet and there's something that's plaguing you. Right? This guilt remains. You, even if you try to ignore it or hide it, try to make up for it. God in His grace brings this guilt upon us in order that we might seek atonement from Him. Which is exactly why God in His grace gave this sacrifice. The third occasion for the guilt offering is if you defraud a neighbor. It's in chapter 6, verses 1-7. through seven. Um, You might rob them. There's an example he gives. You might claim, you find something in theirs, claim it's yours. Um, To sin against a neighbor was to commit offense against the Lord. You want to resolve this issue, you confess your guilt, you restore what you took, plus 20%, and bring a ram for atonement. I do want you to note verse 5 of chapter 6. He says for, I'm jumping in the middle, just for time's sake. He says, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full, shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs. And I want you to note this phrase, on the day he realizes his guilt. Right? He says, you want to worship God? You first make amends for the wrong in which you have done. Right? God will give you atonement. But before He accepts your blood sacrifice, your ram, you need to go and seek reconciliation and repay what you have done, the wrong in which you have committed, just as our Lord has taught us. and He say so you want to enjoy peace with God? You want to worship God? You first make restitution to the people that you might be unreconciled with. Matthew 5, He says in verse 22, if you are offering your gift at the altar, that's the bronze altar, and therefore... Uh, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave that gift there before the altar, and go first. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. I wonder, uh, my friends, have you have you hurt anyone? Is there a rift between you and someone? Maybe a rift between spouses. Maybe distance between parents and children. Maybe teens you've dishonored your parents, or parents you've been harsh with your children. Maybe a distance between siblings and co-workers. You know what Scripture says. Listen, stop worshiping God and go and do everything you can to make that right and then come back and bring your offering. You say, why will we do that? Well, because Christ has made restitution for our sin, hasn't He? He's covered our debt. Think about all that we have done to wrong Him. Listen, you owe Him more than an extra 20%, don't you? You owe Him your lives. And Jesus Christ was crushed for your iniquity. Jesus Christ took upon Himself the debt that we owe. Therefore, He says, now you go and do likewise. Don't just think you can come here and worship Me whenever you want and you, you have broken relationships lying all over the place. Do what you can to make amends and then come and worship. Deal with the guilt that remains upon you. It reminds me of a very old Scottish fairy tale. It's called The Black Bull of Norway. We'll end with this. It's a story of a of a knight who kills someone in battle that he deeply regret, regrets. And there's great shame and remorse that comes upon him. And, and after he, he kills this man, he's got blood on his garments, his tunic, and he, he tries to wash out the blood that is on his, on his tunic, and he can't get it out. And it, it, it is a, a reminder of his guilt, a reminder of his sin. In fact, the knight is so desperate that he declares, whoever can wash this stain out will be my bride. Well, it just so happens to be a a nasty witch and two daughters along with a humble serving girl. It's here. It might begin to sound familiar to you. The daughters try to wash out the stain, but they cannot. The servant girl knows nothing in the pledge. She just sees the shirt in the laundry, takes it like she takes all the rest of the laundry, and the stain is removed. The witch discovers the stain is removed and pretends that it was one of her daughters that cleaned it and brings her to the night and says, here's your bride, they get engaged. They're about to get married. And yet the knight knows there's something off. And guess what? He finds the humble servant girl. Not because her foot fits a glass slipper, right? but because she sings a song. And they get married. And, they, and then, you know, the sun sets and they live happily ever after. The point of that old fable is that whoever can get the stain out, whoever can wash away the guilt, That's your true love. That's your Savior. The guilt offering was given as a God to provide a way for dealing with guilt, to provide peace to a troubled conscience. It's all pointing us to Jesus who says, I will wash away your sin. Let me tell you this morning. If you come here troubled, Jesus can get the stain out. He can wash it away. He can clear the conscience through the cross. Let us draw near in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience. Hebrews 10. If you're here this morning you're not a Christian, we're thankful that you have come with us this morning. Simply, I just want to ask as we close, what do you do with your guilt? I mean, how do you deal with it? I I go to God and say, God, I've done this wrong. I accept Christ as my Savior who has paid for it. You know, some people say, well, I'll just clean myself up. I'll just wash the stain out. And God says, you can't do that. Only Jesus can clean you. He does so by dying upon the cross, shedding His blood as our guilt offering, as our purification offering, as our final offering, that He might wash away the sin in our lives. And He simply says, if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not about cleaning yourself up. It's about bowing your knee to Christ in faith. I invite you to do so even as we pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful for our Lord and the work that He has done. We are thankful that we who are impure and guilty because of our sin have been washed clean by a Savior. We confess even now that He indeed is our true love. Help us to be more like Him. Help us to be people who go and reconcile and make amends as He has taught us and shown us as we live in light of the great work of our Lord Jesus. We are so thankful that the final offering has been made and that we, in unbelievable honor, can approach You boldly through Christ. Help us to remember the honor that is and to not neglect it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.